So I went to the Hollywood Bowl this week. Oh, I love the Hollywood Bowl. Saw a show there. It's always lovely. Weather was lovely. Yeah, fantastic. Parking was good food? fucking terrible. No, well, we did. We ate beforehand. We went to Uovo, which is great. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah, sure. And we're in the car. This is a true story. We're in the car. Yeah. My wife and I met about 15 years ago, like next week. Yeah. So I said to her, I was like, can you believe that you have known me for more of your adult life than you haven't? And I expected her to be like, oh, no, wow. Yeah, no, I never thought of it that way. She just looks at me and goes, yes. Yes. And I was like, <laughs> I know how numbers work, CJ. Yeah. yeah. No, she was yes. just not amused at all. Quiet, please. And then I, I could I could see this moment where she just like her whole life flashed before her eyes. And she four, just reflected on all of her, three, her poor decisions. Two. Company presents a truly terrible podcast. Welcome to Nonsense, episode number 42. I'm Jeff Parker. I'm Jill. This is our take on the week's business tech and entertainment headlines. This time, we'll look at the danger of running out of gas. It's Evaluate Your Life Day. Wait, what? I have to evaluate my life like right now? Yeah, would you? That'd be great. We'd all like to hear you doing it. I mean... I'm not sure for everyone evaluating your life is a good idea. I mean, in theory, it should work towards net positive, but I feel like there could be a lot of tears. Yeah, you might want to do it with the help of a trained professional. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Step one, take all the sharp things out of your house. Exactly. I feel like <laughs> That's, that would be my approach. Be a thoughtful person. Be a thoughtful person. I would hope so. Don't spend all day being evaluating your life, but be a thoughtful person. That's that's yeah. where you want to head, I think. That's awesome. It's also Conflict Resolution Day. Just one day of conflict resolution. That's right. Conflicts tend to arise in many of our areas of our lives, such as workplaces, relationships, and families. What's important over is how we resolve conflicts. So one day a year, just, the rest of the year, do whatever you want. Just make as much conflict as you can. Do you just queue them up? One day a year, resolve your conflict. Do you just queue them up over 364 days and then on uh, whatever it is? Again, the whole thing seems like a terrible idea. Perhaps this is something you do every day. I would hope we do this every day. Yeah. I'm fine with some like donut day being once a year. Fine with that. Exactly. But I feel like conflict resolution day should be an often thing. <laughs> Literally, the sun should not set on your anger. No. One day you're going to be like, you know what? I don't want to resolve any conflicts today. Fine. Take the day off. That's fine. But the rest of them, you need to stay. You need to be resolving. How's your week going? It's good, except now that I'm, I'm evaluating my life decisions. Now you're just depressed. You're just sitting alone, depressed, evaluating your life. Yeah, I'm a little sad. I'm a little sad. I I have one mildly frustrating that ended amusing story, which is uh, my my wife's car, which is new-ish, still covered under warranty. Uh -huh. What kind of car is it? Has developed a, a coolant leak. It's an Audi. It's made by the fine the fine folks in Germany. Okay. And it has developed a coolant leak, so which I documented and brought to the dealership and described what had happened and said, hey, look, it took a quart of coolant. Coolant is a closed system. It should not yeah, it go should anywhere. Not ever, Let's right. set aside the fact that they had the car for a week and, and couldn't find it, which is their way of saying we didn't fucking look for it. Right. I'm just grumpy at the fact they can't be bothered to troubleshoot anything because apparently that's not their job, which is beyond me. Right. They were kind enough to give me a loaner vehicle, and their loaner vehicle is the exact same car that I gave them, which is nice. They try to give you the same vehicle. Just a different color? Had a slightly smaller motor. Newer, different color, smaller engine, totally fine. Yeah. I had to spend 30 minutes transferring the car seats. I put my kids in it, and my kids are like, ooh, new car. And I'm like, yeah, it's a loaner. I explained to them. Sure. But they both say together, Daddy, we like this car better. And I said, well, why do you like this car better? It's the same car. It's identical. And my son says, Max says, we like this one better because it's cleaner. And I said, well, there's a reason for that, you little shit. Yeah, the reason it's cleaner right. That might be their it, issue. That might be yes. something, something they can control. So, so I tell us, I was like, why don't you just keep mommy's car cleaner? And then Max laughs and says, well, because you give us food in it. And I was like, well, yeah, when you're hungry, I give you food. And Max literally says to me, he's like, well, you're just going to have to choose if you want to feed us or have a clean car. And I was like, you've got <laughs> I'm not the one who me. said I wanted a clean car. You're the ones who exactly. said you liked a clean car. I just thought it was amusing where he just laughed. And I forgot what word he, the word he used was even more amusing, but he was just like, you got to choose. 
lose, it's your choice. That's so it's like, awesome. Okay. That's hilarious. So I haven't fed them in two weeks. No, sure. The kids are starved yeah, yeah. to death. And, yeah, you know, they've the learned. They've learned a lesson. fantastic, though. Shit's going to be clean now when I give them one little trisket. <laughs> can you can you beat my car story for the week? How have you No, been? no. I've been baking sourdough. That's been my obsession in the, in the last... Is that a euphemism? No, that's actually true. I didn't... Oh. Uh, when I, I didn't bake sourdough when COVID came around the, the okay. first time. But only recently I got... I did get COVID. And so I started watching a bunch of master <laughs> I'm sorry. Classes. When COVID came around the first time? Yeah. It hasn't gone anywhere. Well, there's a new. I got a new variant. I get the latest variant. Oh yeah, you want to get the latest you version? You keep up yeah, with yeah. your variants, don't you? you Dude, get, what'd you get? Did you get ice cream sandwich? Always the latest. Or did you get jelly bean? <laughs> what'd you get? I got jelly bean. I got COVID jelly. You bean. got COVID nice. jelly yeah. bean. To explain what CJ, hang on. To explain what CJ is saying, all of the different versions of Android have names of desserts, and if you're a developer, you know them by their dessert names. Sure. And and ice cream sandwich, and it was one. And this know, was a missed opportunity. Fauci should have really named them, or what? Not Fauci doesn't name them. By the desserts. Who names them, right? The who they should name after desserts. Yeah. People are taking them a lot more seriously. Oh man. I don't need the tiramisu. Brought a lot more joy to people thinking, "Hey, I've got ice cream sandwich." Tiramisu. Anyhow, I'm sorry. Anyway, sourdough. So I didn't have. I I watched a bunch of master classes when I finally did get COVID. Okay. And now I can sing like Mariah Carey and I can write like Malcolm Gladwell. I can play the piano like Herbie Hancock. I'm amazing. I can make sourdough like Apollonia Pauline. So I, I have been making sourdough and yeah. getting great joy from this. It is enormous amounts of fun. Absolutely delicious. And I'm also in concert at the Greek next week. I hope you come see me. Uh, but you're not singing. What are you, are you just making sourdough? Is it just I'm making sourdough for people. Jeff's sourdough starter class and we all just sit there and stare at it. I'm going to make the whole theater area just smell really great. That would be amazing. <laughs> I would actually, I would consider buying a ticket to that. Let's get to our headlines. We should. X, formerly Twitter, begins charging users $1 per year to send tweets. I mean... It's, pro- it's supposedly to prove that you're not a bot. So if you pay, if you pay a dollar, apparently you're not a bot, you're a human. First of all, opportunity missed. I would happily pay $2 a month for them to not send me tweets. Yes, exactly. If that was an option. I feel like an opt-out, like I pay you to opt-out would be lovely. I have now fully uninstalled. My Twitter my Twitter days are over. I have uninstalled the app from... My, now, I never yeah. had it on my phone, but I had it on a device that was isolated, an old Android device that was isolated. Isolated, and I've now taken it off of that too. But you still end up there now and again, right? You get a link or something, some other shit. Uh, you still you know, now there. I see the links. Now I, I look at the URL and I go, yeah, yeah. no, I'm good. Do you really? Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather not. I'll pass. I'll pass. I'll stay away from that dumpster fire. Uh, by the way, people are sending me a lot more links to threads now, which never yes. happened before. Yes. All yes. of my yes. Yes. links people said would send would always be Twitter. That's not the case at all now. I'm also getting thread links, which is great. I think that's yeah. that's awesome for the ecosystem. Everybody was like, ah, it's dead. I'm like, give it some time. You got to roll this right. into a snowball. Back to this Twitter charging $1, uh, $1 per year. So here's my thing on this. This doesn't look like revenue driving, even if they were to scale it out to all Small of amount users. of money. By the way, they're only doing it totally. in New Zealand and the Philippines right now. To start, of course. You always want to start there. That's where your biggest Because they want to see the, the traffic in, the, in New Zealand and the Philippines drop to zero <laughs> to zero yeah we're gonna shut those countries down first to me this is something different i have heard hypothetically yes i don't know because i've i've never been there but i have heard that there are sites on the internet that have pornographic material is that right and i've heard i mean again i don't know yeah but i've heard also that on those pornographic sites somebody should look into this that you may go to in the in the darkness of night that uh they ask you for a credit card and they'll charge you like a dollar like for one month of access sure supposedly. sure you know what they're doing yeah and all i want to see or all hypothetically i want to see is is naked pumpkins yeah but they're charging a dollar for this access it's not for the dollar the dollar is not the reason and then of course they start charging you a bajillion dollars well it's to get your credit card information right to start you sort of get you over that that to reduce that, friction that friction yeah get over that friction hump yeah so my, my hunch here is like amazingly and really not that 
amazing. Twitter is just taking a page out of the the porn playbook and they're just charging everybody a buck to get their credit card info. And then I presume at some point in the not too distant future. Oh, and then they can turn into Amazon or anything else they want. No, 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 no. I think it's, I think, I, I think they're so far away from, be, from being that. No, of I course they're going to be monetizing the little tiny nuances of Twitter until everybody's gone. So like you're reading 13, <laughs> you're 13 replies deep on some tweet and there's a little button that says see more. Sure. And then you and click if you want to see you, more, it's, you need to put in 30 X coins in order to fucking see that. And you got to go buy your 30 X coins. Like sure. it's just, and then like, it's just going to be this ghost town. Like imagine like when you go to Jasper, Arizona and you see the old mining town, right? And there's like the old cars and the, that's what, that's what fucking Twitter is going to be. There's going to be I've like, I've never been to Jasper, Arizona, but it totally sounds like my kind of thing to go do. You would love it. Yeah. There's actually some really cool spots to take some photos there too. You really would like it. Anyway, you're going to end up in this place where like Twitter just has like eight people in it just roaming around this ghost town that's Twitter because nobody wants to pay this, the see more button to see more comments on the stupid link. Goldman Sachs might be trying to offload Apple's credit card and savings accounts. I don't think this is really a might. I think they probably are. They've lost so much money being Apple's partner on credit cards and high yield savings accounts. I don't know why Goldman wanted to be in the customer business. I, I think I think they were thinking Apple people were going to be a good credit risk. If you had an Apple phone, maybe you were a good yeah. credit risk. And so they there was really wasn't good vetting of. But of, you're still in the you know co- people's the, credit, like the individual consumer business, which just sounds terrible for good. Like was this just an end run so they could be like, hey, you want you want help financing? I was also thinking as soon as Apple gets this up and running, they're going to dump Goldman because they're not going to sure. need Goldman. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that hasn't happened. I also don't, I don't know if they want to be in the service business of customers. Like that's the real shit end of the spectrum. Oh, it's the genius bar. They'll just go to the genius bar and you'll take your bill and you'll say, uh, I don't understand this charge. And they'll just they'll just mansplain to you what it is, even if they're and wrong. The, and, the teen, and the little genius who doesn't know anything about tech can maybe look at your bill and say, I don't know, you got billed for a weird thing. Man, this is like, I get the same vibes going to the Apple Genius Bar that I used to get going to Fry's. Like the thing that kept me out of Fry's Electronics, which should be the superstore for me, right? Fry's Electronics sure, sure, should have sure. been my happiest place on earth because they had all the nerd stuff. Yeah. You know why I hated going there? I did love I'd, Fry's. I'd go there and inevitably- But the help was terrible. And ne- oh, the help was non-existent. Inevitably, I would go there and I'd be buying whatever I needed, you know, some like a stick of uh, dim memory or something. Yeah. And there'd be some guy next to me explaining to some other guy something about Wi-Fi. Incorrectly. And he was completely and utterly wrong. Oh, sure. Constantly. And of course, Constantly. I can't control myself. Oh, so I'd I can. have to be I like, can. I'd have to be like, well, you know what really it blah, blah. And then I'm like getting into this fucking verbal World War Seven at Fry's. I'm not going there. With a dude that has no, and I'm like, I just, I don't like going to this place. So I just that's stopped the, That's going. my genius bar problem is the, is the guys at the yes, genius bar know so little. They, they know enough to get very, very simple problems solved, but complicated yes. things that just know. And I see these parallels a lot in tech. Like this comes up and especially on like the software side, I'll work with developers and they're like, I, you can tell they don't have some of the base underlying knowledge. I see this with networking a lot. They don't understand how basic networking works sure. and they're trying to mansplain when something's not working. And I'm like, dude, you are really far away you have from what no you have no idea how like, this actually works. I'm not going to tell you to sit down and listen, but you should really consider sitting down and listening <laughs> Maybe for a pick minute. up a book. And so the Apple Genius Bar is that for me 85, 90% of the time. Enough with the headlines. Up next, CJ is going to make us never want to fly again. Uh, again. You know where a town called Gimli is located? Gimli. Gimli. Gimli, North Dakota. Very good guess. Yeah. Not right. Totally was a guess. You want another guess? Is that it? Gimli, Minnesota. Gimli, very close. Gimli is in America's hat, better known as Canada. <laughs> okay. 
It's in Manitoba. Okay. And since no right. one, since Gimli. not one American knows where the hell that is, huh? that's midway between Montreal and Edmonton. So like between North Dakota and Minnesota, just uh, totally north of Winnipeg, maybe just below Pelican Beach somewhere. Exactly. There. Got it. Now, uh, my most uh, my most sarcastic Canadian friends like to remind me that whenever I say Canada's America's hat, that then the U.S. would be like Canada's shorts, which really sets us up like for states that are have less than flat or locations. Like think about Florida in this scenario, but that's that's a separate episode we should do. Do you know anything of Gimli? I don't know where it is. Gimli Beach, Gimli Harbor. Not really. Okay. This is crazy. First of all, set this up. Gimli is an unincorporated community on the west side of Lake Winnipeg in Manitoba, as I mentioned earlier. It was first settled uh, by Icelanders who were part of the New Iceland Settlement in Manitoba. Had no idea there was a, anything called the New Iceland Settlement. Sure. The community maintains a strong connection to Iceland and, the, and Icelandic culture even today, including the annual Icelandic festival. It was incorporated as a village. What's the annual Icelandic festival? What do they do? No idea, but it sounds fun and cold. Does it involve dancing and fish slapping? I'm, they don't slap fish. How dare you? They're lovely people. They just have a terrible language. Anyway, Gimli was incorporated as a village in 1908, and it held town status between December of 1946 and January of 2003, which does beg the question... What the fuck happened in 2003? Sure, sure. But, but before you go on, are we going to do all the small towns in the yes, world? Is, gonna yes, be, is yes, there going to be a segment for each of yep. them? That's it. Okay, good. I mean, what good. better nonsense than small towns? Um, okay. Anyway, like the Census towns. Canada now recognizes the community as a population center for census purposes. And in 2021, had a population of 2,345 people. So today I want to talk about something that uh, not enough aviation dorks like myself know about. And this is what's called the Gimli Glider. Have you ever heard of this? The Gimli Glider. I'd be shocked if you did. It's really cool. No, but I like the I like the alliteration. It has been over 40 years since the legendary event that is known as the Gimli Glider. Due to a combination of technical issues and human error, an Air Canada Boeing 767 ran out of fuel at 41,000 feet. Oh my goodness. And the pilots glided the plane to a former airfield turned racetrack. Miraculously, they landed without any severe injuries to passengers or crew, and even the aircraft itself went on to serve another 25 years with Air Canada. This is a and they won the race. Crazy, yes, and they won the race, and they came in first in the race by sure. piloting a hundred plus ton fucking Boeing jet to the finish line. Uh, July 23rd, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 took off from Montreal, Quebec, and headed towards Edmonton, Alberta, by way of Ottawa. Okay. The flight was operated by a five-month-old uh, Boeing 767-200 with 61 passengers and eight crew on board. Okay. Just after 8 p.m., while the aircraft was just cruising along at 41,000 feet over Red Lake, uh, which is in Ontario, the crew received a warning of low fuel pressure in the left fuel pump. The pilots assumed the fuel pump had failed, which to me sounds bad. Yeah. But apparently at level flight, the engine can be gravity fed. So it's actually not a big deal. So they just switched the alarm off. Uh -huh. No big deal, right? Easy peasy. At the time, the flight management computer, the FMC, said there should be plenty of fuel. However, within moments, the right fuel pump alarm also sounded. The crew then decided to divert aircraft to, to Winnipeg, which is about 120 miles away. So at this point in time now, they've got two fuel pumps that are dead. They don't know what the fuck's happening. And they're like, we need to get this thing down. Did they forget to fill up before they went up? What happened? Well, let's not jump right to the end. How about we go through some steps in the middle? They're, you know. I, okay, okay, okay. I mean, you must be really fun going to movies. Sorry. You're just like, I don't understand. Does he kill the guy? What happened? Fuck. Can you just wait? <laughs> the sled? The sled is Rosebud? I made my poor wife, this is true, sit through the first episode of Severance on Apple TV. And afterwards, she's like, that whole thing should have been three minutes. Sure. <laughs> I was like... Relax. They're building to a yeah. thing. Like you call Ben Stiller and tell him he's doing a shitty job directly. <laughs> I think it's great. So they call Winnipeg and they say, hey, we need to land. We got a problem. And as they're as they commence the descent, yeah. the left engine 
failed within minutes. Oh, wow. So as they were communicating their, their, their updated intentions to the controllers in Winnipeg, and as they're trying to restart the left engine, the cockpit warning system sounded again with the, quote, all engines out sound, which is a sharp bong Ugh. that no one in the cockpit could recall having ever heard before. Ideally, sure. This is bad. You're now in a situation on a plane where no one's ever been in this situation before. The right side engine stopped seconds later. The 767 lost all power. Flying with all engines out was never expected to occur, so it had never been covered in training. And the crew and the controller's problems, the plane's transponder failed, right? Stopping the altitude reporting function and forcing the controllers to revert the primary radar to track the plane. Why? So the 767 was one of the first airliners to include an electronic flight instrument system, which operated on electricity generated by the aircraft's jet engines. Uh -huh. With both engines stopped, the system went dead. Sure. Most screens went blank. Of course it did. Right? There's only a few basic battery-powered emergency flight instruments. And while those provided sufficient information to land the aircraft, the backup instruments did not include a vertical speed indicator that could be used to determine how far the aircraft could glide. Ugh. So now they didn't know. They're were, they were also above the cloud floor, right? So yeah, yeah, they yeah. couldn't see, they couldn't get like a visual estimate of how far that they were falling. Right. Just to make this even worse, on the 767, that is not a small plane, right? The control surfaces are so large that the pilots cannot move them with muscle power alone, right? They've got a hydraulic system that's used to multiply the forces that the, the pilots apply. Sure, sure. Well, when the engine power is out, uh, that's what normally that's what normally supplies the hydraulic system. That's the end of that. I didn't know this, and I consider myself a bit of a plane dork. In these cases, we have a complete power outage. The aircrafts are designed with what's called a ram air turbine, lovingly known as the RAT. The RAT is basically an air-driven generator, right? So when the RAT swings out from a compartment and it drives a generator or a hydraulic pump using air pressure, so it's like the opposite of a propeller, right? I mean, it's it's you're using air pressure, which is brilliant to mm -hmm. me. Sure. The rat generates all this power from the airstream by by this ram pressure. They're typically about 80 centimeters, sort of 31 inches in diameter. And a typical large rat on a commercial aircraft uh, can produce anywhere between five to 70 kilowatts, depending on the generator, which is a shit ton of power, right? Oh, wow, wow. Smaller low-speed ones. Are, yeah, that's remarkable. For something that's like the size of a house fan. Well, yeah. Smaller ones might only generate 400 watts, but it depends on the size of the plane. As a quick aside, because I love when I find this shit when I'm researching this, yeah. the Airbus A380, you know that plane that's a double-decker plane, or as I like to call it, the beluga of the sky? It has the largest rat in the world sure. at 1.6 meters, or 64 inches in diameter. For perspective, that is 25% larger than the propeller huge. on a Cessna 172. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> that is fucking huge. That's crazy. So back to the Air Canada 143 flight. Sure. So they got the rat deployed. They had enough power and emergency instru instrumentation to sufficiently land the aircraft. And it also provided some hydraulic support for the crew to be able to maneuver the plane, which would have not been possible with, with just their pure strength. But they still didn't have a vertical speed indicator. So they still didn't know how far they could glide. Now, as luck would have it, and this, this whole story is really about the, the crazy amounts of luck that are interwoven to it. The captain of this flight was Robin Bob Pearson, 48-year-old dude with over 15,000 hours of flying time. With him in the cockpit was First Officer Maurice Quintel. He was age 36 with 7,000 hours, 7, hours of flying time. By a stroke of luck, Captain Pearson was also an established glider pilot, so he knew how to glide aircraft. Amazing. First Officer Quintel had trained at the former RCAF uh, station Gimli, which was a closed Air Force base where he had once served as a pilot for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Unbeknownst to Quintel or the air traffic controller, a part of that facility had been converted to a racetrack complex and was now known as the Gimli Motorsports Park. It included a road race course, a go-kart track, and a drag strip. At the time, a Canadian automobile sports club sanctioned sports car race hosted by the Winnipeg Sports Car Club 
was underway. So the area around the decommissioned runway was full of cars and campers, people racing, people hanging out. And part of the actual decommissioned runway was being used to stage the race. Of course, of course. They didn't know any of this shit, right? Sure. Okay, so now they've got no main power. The pilots used a gravity drop to lower the landing gear and lock it into place, which worked for the main gear, but the nose wheel did not lock. Oof. So now the nose wheel was not down. Sure. That sounds really bad, but as it turns out, that ended up being one of the other bits of luck that allowed uh, this catastrophe to not be a bigger catastrophe. Uh, as the aircraft slowed on approach to landing, the reduced power generated by the ram air turbine reduced, right? You're going slower, and the aircraft became harder and harder to control. As they approached the runway, Pilots realized it was coming in too high and too fast, increasing the likelihood that the 767 would run off the runway. Uh, the lack of this hydraulic pressure prevented flaps and slats from extending that would have, under you know normal conditions, reduced the aircraft's stall speed and increased the lift to slow the airliner. They briefly considered doing a 360-degree turn to reduce the speed and altitude. Sure, sure. They decided they didn't have enough altitude for the maneuver. Oh, wow. Like, this is all happening in real time, right? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. should we do a bank? And they're like, oh, we'll die. Okay, well, let's not do that. Let's figure something else let's out. Let's not do that then. The bank is not a good idea. So Pearson decided to execute something called a forward slip to increase drag and reduce altitude. This is something you would normally never do, right? This is performed by crossing the controls. So you put the rudder in one direction and the airliners in the other. And it's commonly used in gliders and light aircraft to descend more quickly, but it's rarely used in large jet airliners outside of these sort of like emergencies. And that forward slip disrupted airflow past the ram air turbine, which decreased hydraulic power even more. So as he's doing this, it's getting even harder to control, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right. none of this sounds good. This all sounds terrible. Right. Check this out from the perspective of, of you on the ground at the race with both engines dead. The plane didn't make any noise, so no one heard it approaching. Of course it didn't. Now, is the radio dead? Is that powered by the same electrical system? They have radio still. That's good. But that's no longer yeah. uh, an airport. They had no way to radio the airport, apparently, to tell them. Yeah, but at least you can radio the ground and somebody can make a phone call or something. Well, yeah, 1983. Who are you going to call? You've got like three minutes. You're going to just go look up the sport. Like, uh, what's the phone number? Uh, That's true. Klondike 656. Like, what the fuck? None exactly. of it's going to work. <laughs> so, so people on the ground had no warning of this landing. And uh, as the gliding plane closed in on the decommissioned runway, the pilots noticed two boys who were riding bicycles within a thousand feet of the, the projected point of impact. Captain Pearson later said that the boys were so close that he could see the sheer terror on their faces as they realized the large aircraft was bearing down on them. Oh, my right? word. Like, this oh. is crazy. At the end of the day, there were really two factors that helped avert this like terrible catastrophe that this could have been. Uh, the front landing gear to lock in position. That was key because that helped slow the plane. And then there was a guardrail that had been installed along the center of the repurposed runway which was to, to facilitate it to being used as a drag strip. Sure, sure. As soon as they got it down, Pearson braked hard uh, when the wheels touched down, skidding and promptly blowing out two of the tires. The unlocked nose collapsed and was forced back into its well, causing the aircraft's nose to slam into and bounce off of and then scrape along the ground. Yikes. That additional friction helped slow it down. I mean, it threw like a 300-foot rooster tail sure, sparks, sure, sure. which was crazy. He applied extra brake, and he caused the, the main landing gear to sort of straddle on the guardrail. And just, you know, sacrifice the plane to try to slow it down. Yeah, right. And it finally came to a stop 17 minutes after running out of fuel. So everything I just described happened in 17 minutes, which is wow. fucking madness to me, right? Like, that is a lot to go on in 17 minutes. There were no serious injuries among the 61 passengers or the people on the ground. As the aircraft's nose had collapsed, the tail was elevated. So there were some minor injuries with people exiting the rear of the aircraft because the slides weren't long enough. Right. But still, given all of this, right, you should be pretty happy. Right. So that's it's a good day. 
Uh, a good trade-off. Pearson later recounted, uh, quote, when we stopped, my knees should have been shaking, but we did the evacuation, got everybody off. Then I got back on board and thought, I can't let this brand new airplane burn up. So we went to look for an extinguisher in the flight deck and was overcome with smoke. Then the car club folks showed up with big fire extinguishers. And by the time the fire department arrived, the chief shook my hand and gave me his business card, which is kind of crazy, right? I love that nice story. Work. Nice work. Yeah, he showed up. He's like, hey, if you want to do this again, you just come by. We got some houses you can put out. Sure. Okay. So check this out. Investigators found that there were only 64 liters of fuel in the tanks, but there were no leaks. So what the fuck happened? What happened? Yeah. Right. And the answer is a combination of technical issues, organizational challenges, and human error, namely the metric system. And this is the part where oh, I think okay. you're really going to okay. love the story, right? Sure. And you're going you're gonna to figure out the ending pretty quick. So at the top, you had problems with what was called the fuel quantity indication system, the FQIS. The FQIS on this aircraft was a dual processor channel, as most things on aircrafts are, right? You have two independent channels to calculate the fuel load and cross-check with each other. Sure. If one fails... The, the system could still operate. You just turn off the other channel. But then procedure required that if one failed, you had to cross-check against a, a dipstick, a float stick, to make sure that you didn't have an error in one, right? That was the, the procedure. If both channels failed and no fuel was seen in the cockpit, then the aircraft would be considered unserviceable and not authorized to fly. Sure. That was the procedure at the time. But because there have been inconsistencies found in other FQISs and other 767s, remember this is a brand new aircraft at the, t- at the time, Boeing issued a service bulletin for the routine checking of this system. An engineer in Edmonton duly did what he was supposed to do. And when the aircraft arrived from Toronto, following a trouble-free flight from the day before, uh, he conducted it and the FQIS failed. So the cockpit gauges went blank. Engineer did what he was supposed to do. Uh, He encountered the same problem earlier in the month uh, on the same aircraft. He found that disabling the second channel by pulling the circuit breaker in the cockpit restored the fuel gauges to working order, albeit with only the single FQIS channel operative. He didn't have any spares. So he repeated this fix and then put it in the service log. And he put in the service log, service check, found fuel quantity indicator blank, fuel quantity two, circuit breaker pulled and tagged, right? That's what went into the service log. Sure. Which reports that the fuel gauges were blank and that the second FQIS channel was disabled, but it does not make it clear that the latter fixed the former. Yeah, right. And this is really what's interesting about this. The aircraft flew from Edmonton to Montreal on the day of the incident. Before that departure, the engineer informed the pilot of the problem, confirmed that the tanks must be verified with a float stick. In a misunderstanding, the pilot believed the aircraft had been flown with the fault from Toronto the previous afternoon. So the flight to Montreal proceeded uneventfully, fuel gauges operating correctly on the single channel. Yeah. So he thought problem resolved, right? Not an issue. Yeah, yeah. On arrival in Montreal, the crew changed for the return flight to Edmonton. The outgoing pilot informed Captain Pearson and the first officer of the problem with the FQIS, passed along his mistaken belief that the aircraft had flown the previous day with this problem. In a further misunderstanding, Captain Pearson believed he was also being told that the FQIS had been completely unserviceable since then. So it got like telephone game, right? It just continued to get worse. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, While the aircraft was being prepared to return to Edmonton, a maintenance worker decided to investigate the problem with the faulty FQIS. To test the system, he re-enabled the second channel, at which point the fuel gauges in the cockpit went blank. However, before he could disable the second channel again, he was called away to perform a float stick measurement of the remaining fuel, leaving the circuit breaker tagged, which masked the whole fact that it was no longer pulled. So now the FQIS was completely unserviceable and the fuel gauges were blank. So now you've got this, like, the problem is almost chasing the hypothetical problem that they thought they had. Right, right, right. So in entering the cockpit, Pearson saw what he was expecting to see, right? Blank fuel gauges and a tagged circuit breaker. That's what he expected to see. He consulted the what's called the Master Minimum Equipment List. This is the MMEL which indicated that the aircraft was not legal to fly with blank 
fuel gauges. But still, due to yet another misunderstanding, Pearson believed it was safe to fly if the amount of fuel was confirmed with measuring sticks, which it was not It was not safe to fly, but he thought that it was. Sure, sure. And again, the setting for this time is the 767 was a very new aircraft. It had made its, its maiden flight less than two years previously like in September of 81. And it was only the 47th Boeing 767 off the production line. And it had been delivered to Air Canada four months previously. In that time, right, less than two years, there had been 55 changes made to the MMEL and some pages were still left blank pending the development of procedures, which is insane. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. There were procedure pages in the manual that were blank. Did they all make it in? Who knows? This was, I'm, uh, I'm right, assuming right. this was like a three-ring binder. Well, you got to know. So It's got to be a checklist. You got to you know. You would hope, right? I mean, what the hell? Okay, so now let's talk about the maths, because this is where the real problem ended up uh, uh, sort of manifesting itself. In older aircraft, you had a three-person crew, right? The flight engineer kept a fuel log and supervised the fueling. In a 767... Uh, this was like a whole new generation of aircraft that flew with only a pilot and a co-pilot, right? They got rid of the engineer. Yeah, yeah. But Air Canada had not clearly assigned responsibility for who should be supervising the fuel. Also insane. Like, yeah, sure. If you don't make it clear who it is, who the hell's job and then is it? It falls through the cracks. By the way, this is not something you probably want to fall through the, the cracks. The amount generally. of fuel in the plane, yeah. you would really hope yeah. that that's right. Okay, now this is probably the part of the story that just made me pull my hair out the most. On the day of the accident, Two technicians and two pilots worked on the calculations in Montreal. One technician stopped after he found that he was not making any progress. And just stopped. What the fuck does that mean? Like, he was doing math, and then he found the math wasn't getting him anywhere, so he just stopped. I give up. I mean, that is just insane. Continue to fly your plane. I can't figure anything out, so you're on your own. Good luck. Oh, wait a minute. Another technician was using a piece of paper in his pocket and he stopped when he ran out of space. On the paper. On the paper. Oh, my. Like, are you fucking kidding, right? Okay, so then First Officer Quintel did the calculations by hand, and Captain Pearson checked the arithmetic with his Jepson slide rule. Oh, nice. This is, this is the time we're living sure. in, right? <laughs> Since the FQS was not working, Pearson decided to take on enough fuel to reach Edmonton without refueling at Ottawa. The flight plan showed that they needed over 22,000 kilograms of fuel uh, for the flight from Montreal to Ottawa to Edmonton. A dipstick check found that they had about 7,600 liters of fuel already in the tanks. So to calculate how much fuel the airplane needed to take on, all he had to do was convert the 7,600 liters uh, in the tanks into their equivalent mass in kilograms, subtract the figure from what he needed, the 22,000 kilograms, and then convert the result back into volume. Because you you do your, your distance calcs on mass, and then volume is, is how you fill the plane, Right. Nice and easy. Should be sure. simple. All good. Here's where it gets a little a little dicey. The density in metric units is about 0.8 kilograms per liter. So the correct calculation would be you taking right liters times kilograms per liter. That gets you the mass of fuel that's already on board. Then you subtract the two kilograms. It tells you how much mass you need. And then you take the kilograms divided by the kilograms per liter. And that gives you the volume of the additional fuel. Like this is really simple algebra. This is not sure, hard. Sure, sure, sure. Should be. Should At be. At the time of the incident, though... Canada's aviation sector was converting from imperial to metric units. And as part of this process, the new 767s acquired by Air Canada were the first to be calibrated for metric units. The fueler reported the density of jet fuel at the time as 1.77, which is pounds per liter, which, first of all, that gives me fucking hives. Why are you mixing right, pounds right, right. and liters? It's a mess. But this was the world that they were in, right? This conversion. Since because other Air Canada aircraft still used pounds. So Pearson and Quintel both used the density of the jet fuel in pounds per liter without converting to kilograms per liter. 
So instead of taking on the the just over twenty thousand liters that they needed of additional fuel, yeah, yeah, they took on just under five thousand liters. So this incorrect conversion factor led to a total fuel load of twenty two thousand pounds rather than forty nine thousand pounds. So they ended up way short, right? They had less sure. than half of the amount of fuel that they needed. <laughs> the flight management computer measures fuel consumption, allowing the crew to keep track of fuel burned as the flight progresses. It's normally updated automatically by the FQIS, but the fuel quantity can also be entered in manually. Because the FMC would reset during the stopover in Ottawa, the captain had the fuel tanks measured again with the dipstick in Ottawa, right? They made this segment. Uh, sure. With 11,000 liters of fuel in the tanks, the fuel gave a density of 1.78. So he repeated the same error and determined he had plenty of fuel, right? No problem, even though he actually had less than half of what he needed. The previous flight from Edmonton to Montreal had avoided the air, and the fueler in Edmonton knew the density of jet fuel in kilograms per liter because he, he calculated it correctly. He testified yeah, later that yeah. it was a, quote, regular practice of his to do such calculations. When fueling was complete, uh, the, the first captains checked the figures, and they knew from previous experience the, of the, the density of jet fuel in kilograms per liter. So this whole issue basically came down to a, a conversion issue, right, between pounds to liter and kilograms per liter, them just having the wrong constant. And that was pretty nuts, right? Because this could have been, you could have had 69 people die. Oh, sure, sure, or sure. Or more, yeah. right? More With on crew. the ground. So, okay, so following Air Canada's internal investigation, Pearson was demoted for six months, and First Officer Quintel was suspended for two weeks for allowing the incident to happen. Three maintenance workers were also suspended. The aircraft was temporarily repaired at Gimli, and it flew out two days later to be fully repaired at a maintenance base in Winnipeg. The aircraft was returned to service with uh, Air Canada after the full repair and kept operating until 2008. Wow. Right? When it was withdrawn from service and, and uh, subsequently stored and partially scrapped at the Mojave Air and Spaceport right here in California. Sure, sure. As a quick aside, doing the research on this, I learned about this awesome company called Plane Tags located here in LA. Uh-huh. They take old aviation aircraft and they take like the fuselages and they make tags out of them like that you can put on your bag or just keep it's super cool unfortunately they're out of the aluminum that's really yeah, cool they're sold out of the gimli ones but they do have giant half inch chunks of steel that are from the launch vehicle for the space shuttle they are not cheap but i am planning on buying a couple because they are super cool that's an aside how much how much how much uh those are like 250 bucks each for, you know a little okay. chunk of steel but it's still it's yeah no it's i mean cool. you don't it's a piece really cool. of what the space shuttle used to touch it's pretty nuts right the aviation safety board of canada found fault with air canada procedures training and manuals it recommended the adoption of fueling procedures and other safety measures that the u.s and european airlines were already using the board also recommended the immediate conversion of all air canada aircraft from imperial units to metric units yeah since a mixed fleet was more dangerous than an all imperial or an all metric fleet oh for sure right for Which, sure to me, that's the real takeaway is like, don't just pick one Makes fucking sense. system. I don't even care if you pick Imperial, just right. pick a system. Now, following a successful appeal against their suspensions, Pearson and Quintel were assigned as crew members aboard another Air Canada flight. So they were able to appeal their suspension. Now, this is super interesting. A couple of years later, several attempts by other crews who were given the same circumstances in a simulator in Vancouver resulted in crashes. So the Canadians sort of thought, hmm, maybe these guys are actually heroes. And in 1985, sure. both Pearson and Quintel were awarded the first ever Federation Aeronautica International Diploma for Outstanding Airmanship, which I think is because they knew how to they knew how to pilot gliders. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's the thing that if you put two and you know any other two pilots in there, I'm not sure you would have seen nobody survive the same landing. Right? Like 
This was yeah. a qu- this yeah. is a crazy story of circumstance and luck. But if I put two other pilots in there, maybe they understand uh, units, and I don't have this problem at all. By the way, always looking at the bright side, aren't you? You know, if I'm a pilot on this thing, I'm going to double check everyone's work so that this well, doesn't happen. I, mean, I, mean, I think you'd you'd care about that. By I the know. way, if I'm a passenger on this. And I know that you're mixing I'll units. List. Can I double I want to check see your, your fuel work? math? Next time I get to my Southwest exactly. flight, like, hey, hey, Bob, I want to see your fuel math. Show me what's going can on. Can I see your fuel math? I don't care if your paper's not big enough. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Here, can I can I get you some more paper? Here, here's an eight and a half by exactly. A four is that big enough? What do you need? Uh, Quintal was promoted to captain in 1989. Pearson's remained with Air Canada for ten years and then moved to flying for Asian Airlines. He retired in 1995. From what I can tell, uh, Pearson is still alive. He gave an interview not too long ago. Uh, Maurice Quintel died at the age of 68 in um, uh, September of 2015. There has been a bit of TV created about this. There was a 1995 television movie called Falling from the Sky, which was based loosely on this event. And the Discovery Channel uh, in Canada uh, had a series called Mayday that covered the incident in a 2008 episode titled The Gimli Glider. And it, it featured survivors and it actually included Pearson and Quintel and had a dramatic like flight recreation, like all the shit that we would do to try to make aviation more scary. But it's a crazy story. And like everything about that, like the, the metric units, the miscalculation, the botch system, like landing on a, on a, a fucking sports car, like road race, <laughs> like all of this is just, you wouldn't believe any of it, right? Like none of this is believable to me until you go, it's real. It's just amazing. Isn't that incredible? Everything about this. And like it, the tagging procedure is the other thing that really stands out to me. It's like, it's, I, I say this all the time, especially with, with engineers, it's why that, that switch, right? That context, which is so important. Because like you could be in the middle of a problem, you could be two hours deep, just under, starting to understand, it, and then some Yahoo like me comes along and says, "Hey Jeff, what's the Wi-Fi password?" Right, and that's enough to reset that two hours of work. And it seems like that's what happened to the the technician or the the engineer Ugh. who was on there like diagnosing the problem, and they said, "Hey, we need you to check the thing." He just lost track of that and didn't come back to it, and just happened to leave the plane in a state that was really suboptimal. That stuff's scary, right? Like this miscommunication. I mean, I always call it, anybody who's ever worked with me on any project ever has at some point heard me mutter the expression uh, "purple monkey dishwasher." Sure, sure. Because that's what shit. That's the telephone game, right? That's what it turns into. Yeah. Somebody says something like, "Oh, check the fuel," and by the time you get to the other end, it's like you know, purple monkey dishwasher, and you're like, "Wait, what? I'm, wa- I'm waxing the tail yeah, like you asked exactly. me to." And you're like, "Wait, what? No, <laughs> what?" No, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> anyway, crazy story. Gimli Glider, uh, the fine folks up at Air Canada took what could have been a very bad disaster and made it a, a fun story for me to tell on our podcast. For sure. Like if you go to Reddit, they'll have content that will be marked NSFW, right? Not safe uh-huh, sure, for not work. Sure, not safe for work, of course. NSFL, of course. not safe for life. Oh, okay. I feel like we should. I've not seen that one. I feel like we should. Usually it's very mm, terrible, gory things. I feel like we should label some of these episodes NSFF, not safe for flying. Sure, sure. You would not want to listen to some of these podcast episodes while you're. Could you imagine? While you're up 30,000 feet. You're boarding your United flight and I'm sitting here talking about how some dudes fucked up the conversion of kilograms and pounds and the plane ran out of gas. Okay, but that brings up an interesting question. Flights in the US, since we're still still on the imperial system and the rest of the world is on metric, there's like three countries still using imperial units. It's the United States, it's Liberia, and it's Myanmar. And that's it. That we're the last ones still using the imperial system. So you've got like Liberia. How insane is that? And Myanmar, who are basically like footnotes and then you've oh, got yeah, sure. the most powerful country in the fucking planet. <laughs> Still <laughs> using the imperial system while the rest of the world is happily on metrics. What is wrong with us? Why can't we fix oh, this? It's just painful. It's just painful. We're so far behind the world in so many important ways. Anyway, so so explain to me this. Yeah. In Air 
craft work. I don't know how to say this. Are they still using imperial units in the United States? So the answer is yes, mainly, but it's but it's it's for. Oh, please tell me. Please tell me the answer isn't partially. Well, no, I think it is partially because it seems. Oh, that's even worse. It seems to be customary depending on the areas from the best I can tell. Now, we still do use altitude and feet, and I believe that is globally. I, I mean, yeah. it's still customary, but I think it's globally. The reason for let's that, let, I believe, let's is let that go. Be, well, because no, be, there's a good reason for this. Because a thousand feet happens to be a very convenient separator of distance between planes. Okay. So a, a thousand feet for altitude, if you're flying in different directions, happens to be a convenient separator. So I think that's why. You know, 300 meters could be a good separator. Well, yeah, you don't, you don't say 300 meters, which I think actually makes the math harder. We're normally in SI. No, it makes it easier. I'm at 900, 1200 meters, I don't know, 1500 meters. No, you just do it in thousands. It's easy. I think. Oh God, no! Don't don't look. I'm a big fan of. I'm at of 300 SI. meters. I'm at 600 meters. I'm at 900 meters. It's not a big deal. And then distance is still nautical miles. Do you know why they use nautical miles? No idea. Because I think it's I think it's a, a rela- easier conversion to the units used for latitude and longitude. Because those aren't SI, and I, to my knowledge, there is no SI equivalent for latitude and longitude. Yeah. So because that's where the mile comes from. Units are hard, man. I'm. I'm. No, they're not. Make them all metric. I. I generally am for all metric. I don't know about with aviation, man. I might. This might be a good I place to so. pause. I don't know. All right, we have to get out of here, but quickly before we do, have you seen or read anything good this last week that doesn't have to do with uh, imperial or metric units? Hopefully, <laughs> with uh, with certain death. Would you like me to? Sure. Uh, as it turns out, no. All I've seen is something that has to do with certain death. Because I don't know if you know this. The sun went away this past week. Went dark, yes. yes. Which was like, how could you not not see that? It was amazing. We weren't yeah. in totality, of, or actually not totality. We wouldn't have been in what I think they call annularity, since it was an annular. Yeah, annular annularity. But uh, it was still, I don't know, maybe about 75-ish percent coverage. A ring peak. of fire. We had a ring of fire. Did you? Did well, you, you couldn't you... see the ring of fire because it wasn't, we're, we're not in the path. But yeah. I saw it like 75-ish percent. Yeah, sure. What was super cool. So I actually had an event at my kid's school. I'm the nerd that brought all the glasses for everyone to see. So I'm literally walking with people I've never met going, here, put these on and look at the sun. And literally people sure. were looking at me going, are you serious? And I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm serious. Look at the sun. Dude, you're going to want to do this. You're going to want to do it. this. By the way, you only have four minutes where you can do that. Yeah, it was a very small window. But here's what was so cool. Everyone that did it, everyone was blown from away. From a three-year-old to a 70-year-old. Everyone that did it was like, whoa, because <laughs> you never think to see it. And really cool. There was one guy there who did not seem to be the crazy, you know, dorky nerds like you and I are. And he didn't know there's a solar eclipse going on. And I, I showed it to him. And he's like, wait a minute. Is this why when I was walking up here, I saw these really weird shadows coming Yeah, the shadows are all strange. And I was like, he's, yeah, he's, dude. He's I was exactly like, right. You basically he's made exactly a pinhole right. camera out of the tree. You just yeah. didn't know it. Right. And there was another dad there that had brought a homemade pinhole camera, which to me is awesome. That's really cool. And he was showing it. And then I pulled out my back pocket full of glasses and he was like, oh, that's kind of cooler. I'm like, no, it actually isn't. I'm like, well, you did <laughs> no, is it's cooler. They're both really, they're both really but like cool. When people see it, they're like, oh, it's a circle. Okay, cool. But then when you actually put on your glasses and everything is dark and you stare at the sun and you see it overlap. Blows your mind. Blows everyone's mind. So mark it on your calendar. April 8th will be a total solar eclipse. That's a, that's a total US. solar eclipse. I'm taking yeah. the whole family. We're going to go to Texas and see this. You're going to get in the path. It will be, you will not see another total eclipse for about 20 plus years in North yeah. America. So if you want to see it, this is the time to go see it. Texas, Oklahoma. I think it goes through Indiana, Pennsylvania. Um, should be pretty cool. Uh, totality in Texas will be about four and a half minutes if you get right in the middle. 
is what I'm planning. But Ring of Fire, that's what we had. And uh, and the only thing I know about Ring of Fire is it's one of Johnny Cash's most popular songs. Yeah. Famous, famous singer-songwriter Johnny Cash, really known for Ring of Fire. Very, very popular song. And it's one of the few songs that he made famous that he didn't write. His wife wrote it. June Carter Cash wrote it. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Anyway, subscribe to my newsletter for more interesting astronomical tips that are probably CJ's Eclipse newsletter. All right. But what? So did you have a thing that you saw or did this week? Or are we just going to gloss over it? A couple days ago, I saw Eddie Izzard at the Dolby, which was great oh. fun. Eddie Izzard is like one of my favorite comedians yeah. in life. And it was such a joy. Eddie Susie Izzard is transvestite. By the way, kind of kind of interesting, prefers to be called by the pronouns of whatever the person talking to him prefers. Reflexive. Just seems to be, okay, yeah. okay you can call me Eddie, you can call me Susie, you can call me he, you can call me whatever you want to call me with, sure. that's what I'm fine That is with. the most compassionate anyway, way to approach that problem. Unbelievably funny, yeah. so funny, so smart. Do yourself a giant favor, look yeah. up Eddie Izzard on YouTube. In fact, do yourself a, an even bigger favor, look up Eddie Izzard Star Wars Canteen. Okay. That's the episode. Thank you for joining us for all this knowledge. Nonsense, a truly terrible podcast from our awful company. This is on the web at nonsense.productions. I'm CJ Little. I'm Jeff Parker. If you like this program, something's wrong with you, but please follow, download, subscribe, and like it. Apple, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, our personal favorite, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Podcastindex.org. Special thanks to our floor director, Sean Phillips. Old Man Phillips is always here to support us. We'll be here every Thursday morning for more nonsense. Please join us. Everybody poops, Jeff.